I think we're going to head into the most exciting time in retail that I think we've seen since probably the like early 90s. But I think we are on the brink of something very, very exciting as long as we're able to let go of the past. That's how Susan feels about the future of retail in South Africa. And in today's episode of the podcast, we look at where the industry is possibly heading and what it should be doing to get there. Today, we're sitting on the 27th of April um, and we're sitting in a lockdown because of the coronavirus. Um, and the interesting thing is that we've only been in lockdown for four weeks, just over four weeks now. Um, and from week one, the headlines that were coming out of some of the big retailers were not good. Mm. Um, just one example, the uh, Edgars and the Edcon group, they had a very public meltdown as to the, the fact that they couldn't pay their suppliers. But they were in business rescue before this lockdown. So They've they been were in business rescue for so many years now. Right. Um, and a couple of weeks before before the lockdown, they announced that CNA had been sold uh, or was for sale to a private equity company. And I just think back to when I was a kid, um, CNA was an absolute flagship retailer in South Africa. It was amazing. It was quite fancy. It was super fancy. Yeah. And they had lots of store space. Mm. Um, but... When this whole thing happens, there was a lot of talk about the fact that retailers just cannot, even the big ones, cannot afford to pay the rents that are now being charged by big malls and the, the people that manage those shopping complexes. Well, I think they've been able to buy the rent as long as they can trade. Mm. But when you can't trade, <laughs> then it's almost impossible to pay the rent, right? But that's, in so many ways, just shows me that then retail as an industry as a model is running on razor thin margins mm. and as you say that if you cannot trade even if it is for a month that model is completely disrupted you you need to have this you know dare i say it it's almost like a ponzi scheme uh, you've got to have money coming in money going out it's a constant flow if there's one little hiccup in that street well, i don't think all retailers are um manufacturing or, or, or surviving on razor thin margins there's certain retailers that make better margins than Apple, you know, but I think that the ones that are really struggling right now are the ones where they have a low density of own label and private label. And I think the private label is really, okay, if you what, don't have, what does that mean? So, so that means that you've got your own brands that you manufacture. So a really good example of that would be uh, Truist. They're probably one of the strongest in South Africa with their own labels. Mm. Um, so you're saying that if you have your own label, obviously you're more resilient Yes, because so your margins are huge. Your margins are better. Mm. So I'm, not, I, I'm definitely not, uh, I, I don't know what everyone's margins are, uh, but, uh, but you know, Truist have got their own labels that they stock that only Truist stocks and they are homegrown. So their Ginger Mary range, their Daniel Heshter range, LTD, uh, uh, what was the one? Something Betty, can't remember. Outback Red or OBR. Mm. So they've got their actual True Earths labels, uh, as True Earths is the label of theirs, as well as all these other. They create a branded emporium. Similarly, uh, Woolworths that had to rebrand because uh, they couldn't take Woolworths into Australia. So they rebranded their entire business, David Jones. Now they've taken it back to Woolworths. Um, 
they've got Edition, they've got Re, they've got Studio W. Mm. Those are all brands that they have created themselves for yeah. sale because people might want to buy a brand curated brand specific brand rather than they would want to buy a Woolworths jersey they would maybe want to buy Studio W the problem I think with some of the guys is that they have got quite a lot they become shops or stores to sell Converse or Nike or Adidas and that's where I think a department store department store I think that's where it's tricky Mm. to make margins but the other guys you can make your margins and that was Stutterford's um you know, before Stadford's, yeah. uh, all of Greaterman's, Garlic's. I'm, <laughs> mm. I'm showing my age here, but yeah, those those old department stores. And internationally, I saw that there's um, JC Penny. JC Penny is now under business rescue. Mm. So I guess that's kind of yeah, that department store setting where you earn a small margin selling other people's brands. Mm. That doesn't work anymore. No, look, in the 80s in South Africa, and I mean, I, I didn't travel internationally in the 80s, but uh, in the 80s in South Africa, you never had an Adidas store or a Nike store. Mm. And I remember when they opened, everyone was like, oh, that's risky. Are people really going to come to a Nike store to buy a Nike product? Would they not rather go to an Edgar's where they can buy a whole lot of different products and Nike being one of them? So so back then, we didn't have the footprint that the big brands had. Um, in a way, I think Edcon and the other Stutterfords and Garlics and Gracemans were able to sell these international brands that didn't have a footprint into Africa. So they were able to get the license to to trade them, whereas now all those brands are here. So yeah. there's not really and, – and your your experience in a Nike store is amazing. The staff are so knowledgeable. You're, 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 you know, if you, like if you go to Nike Town in London, your shoes get sent via a pipe along the roof you know and it drops down it's like unbelievable mm. you, the experience in a nike store is much better than your experience of buying nikes in selfridges so it's the same here your experience at the nike store at say the waterfront or in santon is much better than going to an edcon where there might or might not be staff in the shoe area the staff aren't knowledgeable on which should you buy the pegasus should you buy the air max what are the advantages of both what are the fabrics you know what will last longer if i want to do crossfit versus uh, you know, yoga, what is the shoe that I need? Whereas I think that is the the store experience that those brands are giving um, that is just absolutely superior in those stores. Mm. But now these are understandably lifestyle brands. Um, what? How does that translate for other types of brands? Because what you're talking about is a vertically integrated brand experience where retail is a part of the business. Mm. Um, so I'm thinking of a, a business like At Home that sells kitchenware. Mm. Now, if you have a strong brand like Le Creuset, which is a, a very uh, desirable kitchenware brand, you can have standalone stores. Mm. Uh, but, you know, Global Knives, do you think that that kind of... Um, model would work for global knives in South Africa specifically? I guess you would need to first look at what the market for knives is. And if there's a big market for knives, then you could look at even Mm. taking it that one step further. I think you could ask the same thing. You know, people before would always go to Tafelberg or ANA Furnitures or Macro to go and buy a fridge. Now people go to a Samsung store and Mm. they can buy 
a fridge and they can learn all. And whilst you're in that store, people have got the ability to just absolutely captivate you. I, I don't know if there's an ability, for example, for your global knives example specifically. Um, but I guess the answer might be in offering a curated experience. And maybe it's that you don't have to go in it alone, but you could go in with a partner brand. And I don't think it's one or the other. I think there is multiple options and it's just about research. And once you've got a bit of research and a bit of data, you'll be able to see whether it's viable to open an actual store. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about some of the, the forces of change that are affecting the industry. The mm. one, the one force of change, which I think this lockdown globally has highlighted is that people are starting to question consumerist behavior. Um, and obviously in different parts of the world, consumerism is more entrenched than in others. In South Africa, I would kind of suggest that you have a growing middle class. You have people that are actually quite excited about now finally being allowed to be consumers. So I think there's a different mindset in South Africa. But in the United States and Europe, people are starting to say, you know, there's so much cheap available stuff is you know, should I be buying this stuff? There's like a real um, urgency around this thing called minimalism. People want to have minimalist lifestyles. They are baking their own bread. They are knitting their own jerseys. Um, how do you think that that trend is going to translate into South Africa? Yeah. So I think South Africa is just such a different market. Mm. And... I'm not sure, you know, if South Africa is going to follow minimalism. I think we've got a lot of catch up. I think there are a lot of people in our country that went for many, many years with nothing. And I think that um, before we can even capitalize on a trend of minimalism, we've just got so many demographics, so many different languages, so many different ranges of, of, of demographics that I think that a lot of people's actual needs just aren't even met yet. So I can't imagine and this is just my opinion, I cannot imagine minimalism becoming a big trend yet until everyone has got the same. I think if you're in Europe or America, there is a basis level that there is a minimum that everyone starts from. And I just don't think we have that in South Africa. And I would even dare to say sub-Saharan Africa. You know, we, we, we just are coming from a different place. There are people that that haven't had for so long, their parents never had. And I think that there is an overcompensation there's a lot of people that are self-made um, that that now have got access that grew up in, you know, previously disadvantaged areas that now have access to so much more. And I can't imagine that they would be embracing uh, a, a trend of minimalism uh, when they haven't even fully stocked their kitchen yet or they don't even. I don't know, you know, mm. yeah. So so I, I'm not sure if that trend for South Africa, I don't, I'm not sure if we are ready. I think the difference between the past and the present maybe is that there isn't an urgency in South Africa to get anything because everything is available all the time, you know? And I think that when we were under a nationalist government, there was the scarcity, there still is scarcity, don't get me wrong, but there was this, you don't know when you're going to get that again, or, you know, sometimes still now people buy job lots. So people, you know, there seems to be sometimes a frenzy in some of the stores where they they buy job lots and you're not sure if you're ever going to get this again. It's a once off deal. You know, there were quite a lot. It was quite a lot of that in retail in, in South Africa um, in the 80s and 90s, where you would have the manager's deal of the day or you would have these these real this urgency that seemed to be created um, 
And I'm just not sure if there is that urgency anymore to to quickly go and buy because you're not sure when they're going to have that. Like literally all the e-tailers just constantly mark down that people now just wait for a markdown before they actually buy. Mm. You know, if people want to buy a TV, I'm pretty sure that they'll wait for Black Friday because they know the deals that happened last Black Friday. Unless your TV is literally on the blink and you cannot survive watching on a, another device that you have to go and buy one. But I mean, there's just not this urgency to shop. And I think that's more of a threat. Okay. Um, one of the other trends that I wanted to talk to you about is that the state president is now starting to focus his efforts on the future of the economy. And last week, Thursday, I think it was, he was discussing some of the measures that the government are going to bring in to try and stimulate the economy. And one of the things that he spoke about is this idea of localization and about how he really wants to empower local industry to get back to where it was. Um, Do you think that there is an understanding when it comes to consumer behavior about where products are made do you think there is there are questions that people pose and say is this thing locally made if i buy it am i supporting jobs in south africa do you think that that's something that uh people are starting to demand uh or even have an awareness of and what what do you think the the president means by this localization what does that mean for local retail so i think there are some people that are very loyal to stuff being made locally um but i think for a lot of people price matters more in south africa there's a bigger amount of people that uh need price their need of value for money to be serviced first than they need for their need to be supporting local business I'm not sure what that need is called um So I think that we just have a huge disparity. There's a lot of jobs that are going to be lost. And right now, I think it's price wins for now. If you've got three children and um, they all need new pajamas, I don't think where it's made is going to influence you as much as what the price is. Mm. And I'm talking about probably 50% of South Africa that is, you know, more price conscious. I think there are a lot of people that are up and coming that are aware of something being made locally and they might even pick it. The problem is people don't want to pay more for it. And in manufacturing, and I'm speaking specifically about clothing because I don't know about TVs and cars and uh, like pharmaceuticals, but for me, I get quite delighted when something, I get the choice of being able to buy something that is made locally and it's only 10 Rand more, like fine, or 50 Rand more, 20 Rand more. Definitely want to choose that. Um, I think that their retailers get lambasted when they don't do local stuff because of Facebook and the social platforms that people are able to shame them. Um, but then, like, all your fabric comes from China anyway. So, mm. you know, yes, you are providing jobs for local, but all your fabric comes from China, your threads come from China, your buttons come from China. And your footprint is just as big. So, you know, let's not kid ourselves on a carbon footprint, but obviously it does provide local labor. Um, And I think there is a growing amount of people that are concerned about that. But your people that are, you know, kind of under the threshold or on the threshold, I don't think it makes it. it, For them, they've got many other needs that are far more important. Mm. 
Do you think there's a lack of creativity in this industry? Because I hear you speaking and I, I, I agree with you, but do you think that maybe retail in South Africa is just too bloody lazy? Are they too lazy? Are they too stuck in old ways to actually think of creative solutions as to how they might solve this problem? No, because I think as long as you're selling something, you're going to continue to create more of it to sell. So I I hear what you're saying, and I don't think so, because I think that if Truist wasn't creative, they did, wouldn't have come up with all the different brands to service so many different markets. If Woolworths wasn't creative, they wouldn't have hired so many designers to help facilitate a design-led business. So yes and no. I think what becomes difficult is to design within an Afrocentric uh, handwriting that is ours, that isn't um, maybe copied from overseas trends. But then with all the media, people are on Facebook, they're on Pinterest, they're on Instagram, they are able to see so much that this is what they want. They want the overseas stuff. They don't necessarily want only what's what's uh, African-centric. So, yeah. So maybe what I'm also asking in that is, sure, there's one aspect, which is design. But there's also creativity and innovation when it comes to a business model. Um, and the same way that you say a lot of trends are just imported from overseas, I also feel that maybe the route to market and the business models are also just imported from overseas. Well, one of the things that we were discussing before starting the recording of this podcast is that in many ways, when uh, people like myself talk about trends and you talk about um, technology in the retail space, we'll throw around a term like, oh, e-commerce. And when I think about e-commerce, I think of an American version of e-commerce, which is beautifully designed platform with an excellent uh, consumer experience, customer experience. So the UX is, is done really well. You add product to cart and it comes via a courier in the normal way. Mm. But we were talking, as I say, we were talking yesterday. And the the thing that I guess struck me is that sometimes there are a lot of people who are in retail who use WhatsApp and yeah. who are word of mouth retailers. And in some sense, if you are, if your route to market is WhatsApp, that's e-commerce, isn't it? It might not be an e-commerce platform, but it is a more creative way of getting to your customer. Totally. I mean, we read, I read an article yesterday by the retail prophet, um, Doug Stevens, and he was saying, you know, in the times that are, we're facing, you just either need to be good enough or you need to be the best. There's actually no room for middle, average, middle uh, middle of the road. And I just found this so interesting and, and, and it's something you and I had actually said a while back, um, is, you know, just don't try and be everything to everyone, just be who you need to be in order to survive. And, um, and in order to be true to your brand. And if your brand is not making money, then change who your brand is. Cause it's obviously just not servicing people, you know, and I, and I think you don't have to hold on and wait for your business to go out of fashion to prove that, that the market had changed. I mean, if you're seeing a decline, just fricking change. That's the bottom line. And, um, yeah, when, when he was speaking about this, I, it, it did make us, you know, we, we did end up speaking about that. Like you don't have to have an absolutely perfect site. You can trade on WhatsApp. And I, I was telling you, there was a woman from the clothing bank that, um, I heard her talk many years ago and she was just buying old samples from 
she was getting donations of old samples, overseas samples from retailers that had been cut. She would fix it up and she had a mailing list on WhatsApp and she would just send a picture of her, this dress with the price and then with, and the size and people would say they wanted it and they'd come and bring her cash. And that was it. And she was an e-commerce platform. It doesn't have to be fancy. You can go onto Instagram, take a picture of whatever you're selling out of your wardrobe and DM me details, send me proof of purchase and come and fetch it kind of thing, you know, or come by and bring me cash. So it can literally be as simple as that. So I think that tech, we think it needs to be VC and tech, you know, and Elon Musk, and it actually really can be pretty rudimentary. Mm. And I think people quite like that experience of something being different again and being, yeah. Yeah, and I think one of the lessons for me during this lockdown period is that um, in South Africa, the government said that there was going to be no selling of cigarettes in South Africa during the lockdown period. Um, but I'm not going to mention names, but we heard stories about people who had run out of cigarettes and they needed to go and buy cigarettes. So they went to a retailer who was, by law, not allowed to sell cigarettes. But you know what? If there's money to be made, cigarettes will be sold. Yeah. Um, and it's an example of how exactly, as you say, <laughs> you've got to do what you need to do. You've got to be very aware of what the context is that you are selling things uh, into. And then you've got to find ways of getting products to people. And that's, I guess, what I'm saying about a lack of creativity is that I, I see it now. I, yeah. I kind of feel that South African retailers think, oh, in order to have a shop, I must go up and up, uh, open up a 100 square meter premises at the waterfront because that's where everybody is. Mm. Um, there are many, many ways that you can be a retailer and not all of them look like <laughs> Fifth sure. Avenue in New York. Well, even Fifth Avenue, and I shared on the podcast previously, you know, I was in New York last year and um, I was amazed. Big retailers, big brands that had closed down and they were little vintage shops that were open. That like, I mean, I was just amazed. I'd never seen this before. Mm. On uh, Fifth Avenue, on Prince Street, on Spring Street, I, I was just really amazed. So absolutely. I think the, the thing is that why that exists, the system of why that exists is that it has always been successful. So South Africa had a hugely successful branded business uh, and very, very successful shopping mall culture in the 80s. You know, people from all over the world used to come, 80s and 90s used to come to South Africa to learn about how we did retail. Our malls created because our high streets just not safe enough to, and people not feeling secure enough to shop. So we had to develop a mall culture in order to provide. So it was actually our means of survival, of retail survival. Now that model has, I think, just reached, you know, when you blow up a balloon up and up and up, and it actually just can't get any bigger before it bursts. And I think now it's like, balloon's going to burst. So either we can just get another balloon and we can continue to blow air into it and see if, see if the same thing's going to happen, which obviously, if you continue to do the same thing, you're going to get the same results. Or, okay, shit, let's try. Let's try a pop-up shop. And, and this is one of the things that Doug Stevens was talking about. You know, the, the thing that's going to get retail through this time is leadership and leaders. The best thing you could do is have a diverse and innovative team and ask them how many times they failed, you know, because people are so scared to fail because they think they're not going to get their bonus or, you know, they're not going to be promoted. And now it's just about freaking trying anything you can. The but is that big, hairy, audacious goal or whatever? You know, let's just set some goals. Let's set ones that seem pretty realistic and let's do it like we were speaking last week, a scenario plan session, which let's create a shop for the future. Let's create a shop for now. 
And absolutely, you know, where are there free trade spaces in South Africa? Is anyone researching that? Can you send up a pop-up shop, you know, if you're a Woolworths or a Truworths or a whatever, whoever you are, CNA, can you set up a a shop, a pop-up shop at UCT when it's orientation week? Or can you set up a swimwear shop on Clifton on the pavement? Are, you, are we allowed to trade on our pavements? I'm not sure. Can you get students to go, like when I was in Brazil a few years ago, you could literally buy anything on the beach. They will come with a somehow engineered little stand of Javiana flip-flops and bikinis on the other side. And when you say, sorry, I can't fit on, they no problem. They've engineered a little changing room that they bring with two hula hoops and it's not perfect, probably not that clean. Um, but there is a way for you to try on on the beach. You can also buy sunblock from them. You've got everything. You've got flip-flops, you've got your bikini. You got. They come with a little weaver bra that you can buy corn on the cob. You know, there's just this constant innovation. People are that desperate to make a plan. Um, so I guess that maybe there's that, you know, change happens when the pain of not changing is greater than the pain of changing. Or maybe there's a, a recipe of the amount, right amount of personality of the individual, the right amount of desperation to succeed, the right amount of um, knowledge of market. You know, I think there's a few factors. I, I don't know them all, mm. but but I think it would be interesting to see for your business, what are the, what are the ingredients that are required for you to survive, uh, you know, or for you to innovate or for you to to disrupt. And you don't have to be an Elon Musk to disrupt and mm. you don't have to be a Jeff Bezos. They actually didn't start where they are now. They started, I mean, you worked had the opportunity to work for Amazon back in the nineties, didn't mm, you? Yeah. And they were in a garage. Yeah. They were in a <laughs> warehouse actually in the Seattle dockyards. Um, and you and, were like, how big is this really going to be? Yeah. I mean, at the time I was, um, I was living in Seattle. I'd just finished university. So I was living in Seattle and I was doing some freelance work. So I was part of an agency and I was, um, you know, they'd call me up and they'd say, oh, we've got a client. They want someone to pack boxes. Uh, <laughs> it's this little company called Amazon. You know, they're in this uh, e-commerce thing. Very, very small. Would you like to do it for a weekend? And I was like, geez, are they going to survive the weekend? Do you think I'm going to get paid? <laughs> I'm not quite sure. So, yeah, I went and packed boxes. And, yeah, um, yeah well, as you know, what happened to Amazon? <laughs> um, okay. Okay. Uh, yeah, I think what's, um, you know, what's interesting to me as you're speaking about Brazil, it reminds me of, you know, I, I guess we've all been to Thailand. Um, I've spent a bit of time in Taiwan. And whenever I go to the East, I'm always struck that everybody is an entrepreneur. Mm. And um, if you go to Thailand, I mean, there are night markets everywhere. And the government over the years has tried to regulate it because they're trying to make sure that the night markets are hygienic and that kind of thing. And in Taiwan, yeah, I mean, the food scene there is crazy. No one eats at home. Everyone goes to the markets because everybody's got a stand and the food is just unbelievably good. But, um, you know, if you want to have a restaurant, it's literally a plastic table and a couple of chairs yeah. and a gas burner that you can drive around on a motorbike and you set up wherever you want. And that's your restaurant. I mean, remember when we were in Japan last year and we went to that uh that restaurant that had been going for a hundred years, it was three generations of family that had owned this restaurant. All they did was make this, these pork cutlets, this katsu, mm. and it wasn't fancy. I mean, it was delicious. It was delicious. And it wasn't fancy. Mm. It was in a very fancy area, but the actual restaurant itself wasn't very fancy. And they were slightly abusive at you when you ordered, but you know, it was, yeah, it was just unbelievable. Mm. Um, and I think that in South Africa, there seems to be this, 
like you have to, it has to look a certain way or be a certain way in order for it to be good. It needs to be reassuringly expensive. It needs to be reassuringly fancy. And it actually doesn't. Mm. And I think that the sooner we just let go of what things were, the easier it's going to be to move forward. Because if we think that on the 4th of May or the 4th of June or the 4th of July, we can literally just open up our storefronts and, you know, we can go back to a Dion store or a game store or a macro or whatever, and it'll be the same. It will, it's never going to be the same. And as retailers, I would just say, just let go of that, let go of that memory and create a memory of the future. Because right. if you hold on to that, <clears throat> if you're holding on to something, you actually can't carry on moving forward lightly. All right. So let's talk about the future because I want to just recount a little story um, when Sue and I first started seeing each other. Um, we are now married. We're now married. Uh, <laughs> when we first started seeing each other, I told her that one of my major outings every week, and at the time I was living out in Bloberg, uh, I would drive through to the waterfront and I would go to the Oranjezak City Farmer's Market. And I know Cheryl and I've been going to the market for a very long time. And yeah, I, I guess on that first weekend that we, we met, we were going to meet each other at the market, but I was too quick and you were too late and we, we kind of missed each other. But it's been a, a ritual for us to go to the farmer's market and have a coffee and buy some nice fruit and veg. Um, and during the lockdown, unfortunately, the market had to close. But then this last weekend, um, they got a special license and there were lots of rules, social distancing and temperature being taken. And you had to wear a face mask and all that kind of stuff. But I don't think you and I have been that excited to go on a shopping trip for. <laughs> I had my outfit planned the night before. <laughs> right. I don't even think I remember you that excited when we went to the secondhand stores in Tokyo. No. Uh, we were super, super excited. And in that moment, I guess I thought to myself, well, going to the farmer's market is retail. Why are we so excited to go to the farmer's market? Mm. Why? I mean, why do well, you it's think? it's the experience. You know, for me, it's the experience. Mm. It's that we can choose each and every spring onion that we want. We can choose all the tomatoes that we want. And I guess you could do that in a store, although you can't because your little mini tomatoes are always packaged and put in and your tomatoes are packaged and put in in many of the stores, not in all of them. But it's just, uh, it's that, um, it's that combination space, which doesn't suit everyone, but it suits us. That combination space of uh, products of superior value being offered to you, you get to choose and curate what it is that you want, what I want, what we want. We are able to choose exactly. If we want three pears, we can take three pears. And if we want one mango, we can take that one mango. So I think it's about that curatorship. It's about beautiful product being presented in a beautiful way. Mm. It's about the experience. The experience. And for us, it is being about there. supporting Cheryl. And uh, we hope that there will be more Cheryl's or that Cheryl is able to implement more markets. But we are supporting a, a person. Like I said, it's not important to everyone, but it is important to us. But I think, let's, let's talk about that yeah. because Cheryl Lazinski has, um, she has a long history of being involved in many product projects. She headed up um, Tourism Cape Town. Mm -hmm. 
She launched the um, Robin Island Museum. Mm. She's done some amazing things. She's the director of many, many different companies. Um, and a couple of years ago, she saw the need to uplift the community in which she lives, which is around that area. Um, she turned a bowling green into a little farm um, and started this market, which has been a runaway success. But I guess what I admire the most about Cheryl is that <laughs> every Saturday morning, she is there. She is coordinating. She's on a microphone. She's welcoming people to the store. She's hustling. I mean, this is somebody who is uh, many times over has proven her worth. But yeah. she's not. she didn't sell the market. She didn't sell it to some faceless shareholder. She's there welcoming people. She's making sure that the market functions. And I wonder she, if that she's isn't... a phenomenal woman. I wonder if that isn't part of it. You know, we're, as mm. you said, we're supporting Cheryl. It's not mm. just the market, but we know the people there. We know the owner. Mm. Absolutely. And I think that she is... She is an innovator without needing to build a self-driving car, you know. Um, she And that is it. It's this amazing mix of innovation, but it's actually not tech. It's actually off the grid. There's no Wi-Fi. There's no, you know, it's it's back to a simpler time, you know, back to a nostalgia of shopping at a market where I think my life is complicated. I shop a lot online. I really do. Um, it makes my life very, very easy. Um, but I do enjoy a slowness of our Saturday morning routine where we get up and we do a few things at home. We take a little takeaway coffee or we go and we have coffee from Fundi and we exhale and we watch the view and we see all the dogs and we probably get annoyed by pretty much the same thing every weekend. But there is this just the slowness where we as a couple make decisions for the week ahead and it's mm. like a turning of a new chapter. And so for us, I think it's maybe symbolic. I don't think everyone else would have that same um, experience. But also, I think she is very good at finding the right vendors mm. and it's a high quality product. The product yeah. that is there is the best. Yeah. But I wonder if the same... Um what can I call it? Uh, it? The same human touch, the same personal touch. Does that not translate into the future of retail? Do you think that retail maybe has just become too corporate? It's run by accountants. Um, they're making sure that they can eke out margin. They're doing deals with the waterfront to make sure they've got like the best uh, rental agreement they have. But who who's the person who runs Woolworths at the waterfront? Do you know who they are? Who runs uh, the the pick and pay at Garden Center? I don't know. Some mm. faceless person. Uh, I don't know the people there. Yeah. I I know who. Well, I know who the ex CEO of Woolworths is, and the only reason I know that was because of the poor performance, poor judgments. There. Look, I think often what happens in retail, from my experience, is that when the going gets tough you go back to basics and you go back to what you know and you go back to history. And I just want to say that uh, there's a lot of what you're saying that is history-based, the shopkeeper. So who are our shopkeepers and getting to know them, letting him walk the floor with the microphone and say everything in aisle three is now buy one for two or buy three for seven or whatever. No, I don't know. You know, obviously I'm not a shopkeeper. But, you know, there is definitely a return to this store experience and a return to a personalization and a customization um, of experience. But I would also be wary of just going 
all the way back to the past because the past was good up to a point, but it's what led us to this point. So I wouldn't just go and repeat the past. And I think what Cheryl does do is that she has, there's a nostalgia that she has created, but she's very much relevant and current. And she's got vegan products. She's got vegetable. You know what I mean? She's not just going back to old days where it's only fishmongers and you know, butchers. Mm. She has one fishmonger, she's got one butcher, and that is it. But she, there's an um, amount of freedom that is uh, that allows for um, spontaneity as well. So I think that, I hear what you're saying, but we mustn't just go back to the past either. Yeah, I guess, um, you know, uh, Cheryl would know where those trends are heading, not because she hired a research company to do the research. She knows that because she talks to people. Yeah, she's on the floor. Right. And I guess that's one of the things that I'm Absolutely. kind of missing. Um, when I, you know, when I listen to the CEO of Edgar's, you know, crying on the radio because the business has gone down, I kind of, I feel his pain. But in some sense, I kind of want to know, I don't know, were you on the floor? Were you tra- Were you helping customers? I mean, you were impressed the other day. You saw Zyda Rylands on the floor at Woolies. Yeah, but, I, you know, I saw her on the floor of Woolies after months and months and months <laughs> of bad PR about what was going on at Woolies. And, okay. yes, I did see uh, the executive head, you know, what is she, the CEO of Woolies South Africa. Mm. She was at the Cavendish store along with her executive team. Mm. But in a way, you kind of think to yourself, why did it take a near disaster for you then to get onto the floor and look i don't know maybe she's on the floor all the time i i'm just assuming that she's not but she's not on the floor the same way cheryl lozinski's on the floor she isn't on a microphone like screaming deals and like talking to people she doesn't know my name cheryl Mm. knows my name Mm. you know because we're there every week but yeah i think cheryl knows everybody's name Um, and she's just involved and i guess for me it harks back to a time where you know, the first time I went to New York um, was in the mid 90s. And I remember one of the first shops I went to was the Levi's shop. Um, I think it was in Madison Avenue or something like that. It was, it was a huge five story store. And I was this little student, I had absolutely no money. And I walked into the store because I just so desperately wanted to go to the Levi's store. And as I walked in, there was this Jamaican guy with long dreadlocks. And he'd jumped up to me and he said, hey, man, welcome to the Levi's store. Um, my name's uh, Jerome. I don't know. I, I think that was his name. Anyway, <laughs> he said, my name's Jerome. I'm going to take care of you. Like, what are you looking for? A pair of jeans? And, you know, as the shy South African, I was like, no, I'm just going to have a look around. And he said, nonsense. I will show you around. And, you know, your experience of the store will be better if I show you. Anyhow, he showed me the store, he showed me all the levels and, you know, he helped me try on a couple of pairs of jeans. I wasn't going to buy anything, but I walked out of that (laughs) store with a pair of jeans that I couldn't afford because this guy was just so friendly. Yeah. And I guess that's, uh, you know, the the story is that that guy is a bit like Cheryl. He's Mm. in the moment, he's listening to what I need. It's not just a retail store. It is about, you know, you going in and having an experience if you walk out with products, yes, that's how they make money. But actually, I go to retail for the experience. Sure. Um, and I think that's, uh, we read that article of, of Retail Profit and of Doug Stevens just saying that in this time, what will win will be store experience. You know, this is, this is, the, this is what stores are going to become. Jonathan was asking me yesterday, you know, do you even need a store in, in Canal Walk? or Cavendish, or do you need a store in both? Um, 
and we were speaking about, say, Dion Wide, you know, do you need a store there? Can you not just convert that kind of thing to to online and just have, you know, two or three stores? And I was saying, you know, imagine if Dion Wired or Macro or Game or I'm not sure, um, if they could open up a complete home entertainment uh, and do a deal with NASPASS and get DSTV, like the latest releases, like the month before they get released on DSTV and you show what a surround sound and a TV and a projector and an aircon and a comfy seat and special optic lighting and special, you know, do a collaborate with Plascon and see what color, you know, a paints could be applied in order to get the best, I don't know, reflection or intensity mm. of images or mapping or whatever, and and invite some some people, you know, especially for this, um, and give them this experience. I mean, that would be amazing. I would. I mean, we don't own a TV, but I would probably be swayed to buy a TV or a sound bar or a something, you know, just to to after having an experience like that. So I think you know, give your customers the experience that they don't even know they want, and create a market. Uh, you and I were speaking about, you know, creating markets. Mm. Okay, so let's just talk about, you know, we're not in the game of prediction, but are no. you optimistic about retail in South Africa? I am Africa? very optimistic. I, I, but let me put a disclaimer in saying that I think we're going to head into the most exciting time in retail that I think we've seen since probably the like early 90s which was probably the biggest slump or something i don't know i'm just saying as a, my experience as a consumer i wasn't in retail back then but i think we are on the brink of something very very exciting as long as we're able to let go of the past ways of doing things uh, the past models and build so it's not just about abandoning and letting go but it's about building new models um that that could serve mm-hmm. and i think that it's still going to be tough for a while i mean i don't think we're going to get to level three or level two and it's a magical pill that we swallow and everything is forgotten and we're just trying to make up lost sales. I think that's probably going to be the most difficult thing that retailers are going to face for the next mm. three years yeah. is correcting this history and and making how to make new sales. So I think, you know, this is the thing is you always kind of look to the year before. Um, so next year, obviously, we're all going to look like we're killing it. But uh, but I think that right now is not the time to cut your marketing budgets. It's not the time to cut travel. It's not the time as 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 you know uh, as much of an incentive as that is because we all need to just tighten belts. And I totally get it. Trust me. Um, I think we're going to after after about eighteen months. I think we're going to head into a super exciting time of experimentation and innovation. And people that so often I find the innovation comes from the people that you least expect it. It's not the people with the pink hair and the, you know, bizarre outfits. It's actually from people that are, they have got very simple solutions to try things. It doesn't have to be these huge um, gestures. It's sometimes very small changes that bring about the hugest relief or the hugest um, success. Now, if, um, if you were advising someone who was the CEO of a big... Which I'm definitely not, but well, yeah. Well, let's just assume that somebody of importance is listening to this podcast. <laughs> and they're, they're thinking back to what you said, which is um, diversity is important. They're thinking back to the idea of creativity and the fact that you're optimistic about the future of retail because models can be rethought. There is an opportunity to innovate. There's an opportunity to be creative and a little bit... Uh, dare I say it, fearless in your experimentation. So, Let's say courageous. 
Courageous. Okay, so just a little bit more um, curious. Mm -hmm. um, who would you be listening to? Who would you be hiring? What kind of people would you be partnering with? What, uh, how would you, yeah, who would you listen to? Mm, I would look at the people that have survived. So, example, if I was a food retailer, I'd probably get Cheryl Lazinski in, in two seconds and ask her to help us innovate, you know, ask to help innovate. I would look at the people that have managed, you know, the people from Grenadilla, the, the, the board shorts company. I think they were board shorts company that are now food delivery system. I would speak to them to see, you know, not how can you help us, but what were the thoughts that you had? How did you tackle your innovation? You know, what are some of the, the, what, so you don't always want people to come on and advise you, but you just want to hear what other people's thought processes maybe were and look at what are the systems and the processes that can be, can be put in place. And I would just <laughs> go out and listen to what people want. We looked at an advert the other day uh, that was actually a ShopRite advert where they interviewed what people wanted. And I thought that was just, you know, very simple, very simple, rudimentary form of advertising. But I thought it was great. Mm. Here they are saying, we're going to go to our stores. We're going to ask people what they want, and then we're going to give it to them. Is it that simple? I mean, <laughs> it literally could be that simple. Mm. Um, and just, yeah, let go of your history and just look to build your future. What do you think people are going to need after this lockdown? Alcohol <laughs> and cigarettes. In the short term. But what do you think long term? What do you think South Africans... Trust. People need to know that they can trust, that they can trust the retailer. Mm. Whether you're selling TVs or cars or baby clothes or nappies or wound dressings or whatever it is, they want to know that they can trust them. And trust is earned. Uh, you know, trust has a face. Uh, trust has a very clear identity and face doesn't have to be a literal face. I mean, I'm talking about just a, a consistency. Mm. Um, and I think people, because now in times of real pressure, I remember my experience working at, at, a, at a, a different retailer. Um, we were amazed when we came back. It was, I think it was 2008 recession had just hit and people, well, was overseas obviously and it was starting to to hit here. And everyone just went back to their suppliers and they negotiated and they took stuff off the garments and they made it cheaper and they made it the same price as last year. And then there were other brands within the same business that couldn't. They couldn't take anything out. The stuff had already been manufactured. It was at that same high price. You know, so you had maybe dresses that were selling for a thousand rand or eight ninety nine, which the the what you would have loved to do was negotiate down the supplier, use a cheaper fabric, take out a bit of the hem sweep and maybe give it to the supplier, the, the customer for six ninety nine. The funny thing was that the very cheap products where you took the guts out actually were not the products that were selling. It was the product that was authentic and beautiful and people still saw the value. So you don't have to cu just cut your prices. If you're offering, there's a value equation. It's about price and it's about authenticity and it's about your integrity of the product. If you're offering that, there's, there's the ability to sell different prices. You don't only have to be the cheapest, but there is the ability to price tier. And um, I forgot what the question was. What do people need? Oh, what do people need? Uh, so, yeah, I think listen to them and they'll tell you what they need. Mm. Right? Yeah. Seems too simple. 
we might get criticized for being too naive. I might be criticized. No, but I think that's important. And I think that's it comes back to um, the reason that we love going to support Cheryl at her market every Saturday is that even though we're not giving her advice on what products she should put um, on her shelves, um, she is seeing what people need because she's on the floor selling it mm. to them. And she can see you when she says, oh, here's beautiful figs from series. And, you know, they are a hundred bucks a box. She can see, are people lining up quickly or are they like me? I'm not really, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm not really interested Stop in figs. figs yeah. I'm going to go and snack on this uh, sweet potato that you've got over here. So yeah. I think it's, it's not just about asking people, what do you want? It's about having Listening. a little bit of intuition <laughs> as to, yeah, sure, absolutely. I can see how people are gravitating towards the store or not based on what we're stocking or what we're not. And that is also where tech comes in, you know. So so if you are a big retailer that has got the resources to be able to implement tech, use your tech there. Use your tech to help you build an intuitive system uh, as opposed to just perfecting your online store. Um, you know, your online store is probably good enough if it's running and it's run through this time. Spend your tech to really see what people are picking up and putting down and what they're buying, what they're not, what's being returned, what's not. So really build up those systems and that infrastructure Mm. if you are going to use tech. Yeah. Okay. Um, All right. I thought that was really interesting. Um, I'm glad that you are optimistic about retail. I'm very optimistic. I agree with you. I think it's going to be quite different different than what it was. And I think there's going to be a lot of shakeup in the market. Mm. Um, and I think now is the time to be innovative. It's to partner. It's to think creatively. Um, and the companies that are just doing the same old, same old, they're really going to hit a wall. Um, and hopefully new ones will come through. Mm. But thanks for the chat. Thanks for listening to Heroes of Futurism. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider subscribing and we'll see you next time. Cheers.